0: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Message from a Corpse, an Amy Brewster mystery, written by Sam Merwin, Jr. A Golden Age Murder Mystery Message from a Corpse is a masterpiece from the pen of Golden Age mystery novelist Sam Merwin, Jr., When writer Breck Barnum finds himself framed for murder, he soon realizes the slaying is connected to the autobiography of a world-famous financier he had ghosted. But the unfinished manuscript has disappeared, and Breck thinks he has problems when he discovers a pair of murderous goons and three beautiful women are also searching for it. Then he meets Amy Brewster and discovers his problems are only beginning. She's the only one who can save him if she doesn't drive him crazy first. Never mess with a friend of Amy's. Crimedom is about to discover the real meaning of terror, for Tommy guns and automatics are no match for Amy. And soon the 50-ish millionaire detective finds she's the next target on the killer's list. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Message from a Corpse.
1: Chapter 1 The old man was terribly tired, so tired that it was a definite effort to sit down on the little round seat in the public telephone booth. So tired that once seated, he had to rally his energies during a moment of repose, while his aged heart hammered with frightening drum-beats at the brittle cage of his ribs, and the impatient line of would-be telephoners glowered at him menacingly through the glass of the door. It was hot, and almost unbearably close in the booth, which did not help him to regain control of his breathing. He was, he reflected, with more than a trace of nostalgia, getting too far along in years for all this bustling about. TRAMS, TRAINS, TAXIS, TICKETS, AND THE DISCOMFORT OF EVEN SHORT TRIPS IN AN ERA OF OVERTAXED TRANSPORTATION DRAINED HIM OF ENERGY IN FRIGHTFUL AMOUNTS. FOUR JOURNEYS TO MANHATTAN FROM HIS COMFORTABLE HOME IN Montclair IN LESS THAN A WEEK HAD EATEN OVERHEARTEDLY INTO HIS SLIM REMAINING RESERVE OF VITALITY. HIS BREATHING, IF YOU COULD CALL IT BREATHING IN SUCH A FETID AND STUFFY ATMOSPHERE, FINALLY GREW MORE NORMAL. With a single last sigh, he fumbled for a nickel in his small change pocket, removed the receiver, then worked the coin into the slot and, after spinning the dial with unsteady parchment-like fingers, waited patiently for a response to his call. "'Hello?' he said finally to a series of squawks in the receiver. His voice, while still deep and bearing the remnants of distinction, was ragged and had a senile tendency to develop thin patches." It had lost the ringing timber that, for many years, could keep an entire courtroom hanging on his every word. "'Yes, this is Brian O'Connell,' he explained, paused, scowling a little as his ear endured further squawks against his tympanum. "'Yes, I am aware of conditions, but I am doing everything in my power. Yes, I'm sure he has been terribly busy. I'm on my way over to his office now to explain the entire circumstances to him.' Yes, I'm sure I can impress their importance on him. No, I'm in the tubes terminal. I'll walk it. Walking is about the only exercise that remains for me. He hung up slowly, gathered his scanty physical resources about him, left the booth and carefully climbed the long, steep flight of steps to the sidewalk above him. The stairs conquered. He stood still for a full two minutes, regaining his breath and gazing, like a callow country youth on his first trip to the city, at the clean-cut three-dimensional vastness of Manhattan around him. He was tall, though the stoop of seven decades and six had lopped a good two inches from a formerly erect and impressive stature. Sparse white hair emerged in an uneven fringe from beneath the narrow roll brim of his high crown— almost Churchill-esque black derby. With the white, translucent skin drawn tightly across the bones of his face, Brian O'Connell was a ghostly survival of an era already long buried in the pages of history. His costly four-button black coat with its split skirt and back had long since faded to a shiny brown. His trousers were of the sort clung to so stubbornly by the late King George V of England the kind that are pressed port and starboard instead of fore and aft. Even the magnificent woven gold cable of the watch chain looped through a buttonhole of his waistcoat, with its massive gold and jade seal fob, was heavily and awkwardly obsolete. How New York City had changed! Even though this was his fourth visit to the metropolis in the last few days, he still founded a city of magical newness, 6th Avenue, once a loud unsavory grotto, thanks to the elevated which had reduced the sun to convict stripes, was now a broad and cheerful boulevard. Instead of a roar and clank of the overhead trains, the rolling subway caravans now barely made the sidewalk shudder beneath his high-button shoes. Why, Brian O'Connell could actually remember when steam locomotives trundled along the vanished trestle tooting and belching black coal smoke against the facades of long-dead downtown department stores, as they bore Harlem commuters on the long journey from residential heights to the marts of daily commerce. For a moment he felt homesick for the New York that was. Then, a mile or more uptown, he caught a glimpse of the lucent white masses of Rockefeller Center, outlined like the ramparts of some undreamed-of Camelot against the sky. No, The new New York was better, a foretaste of the incomparable magic of days to come. Slowly, as befitted a man of his years and condition, Brian O'Connell strolled up the avenue. Behind him, on his right, the Empire State Building receded slowly, regretfully foregoing its world-dominant place in the sky beneath its burnished dirigible landing tower that gleamed with stainless steel brightness in the late April afternoon sun. The sun would be reluctant to leave this monument behind, would shine longer hours at twelve hundred odd feet. Past Harold Square he ambled, an aged figure who moved with the formal dignity of a vanished day, remembering the theatres and restaurants and hotels that had once made this double triangle the play spot of the Western Hemisphere. Past Bryant Park, a study in green pastels made vivid by the heat of the underground vaults of library and the subway and city pipelines that put winter frost to early rout, past the gaping cavity that had once been the Hippodrome, famed for its Charlotte Russe ice ballets, its curtains that rose from the floor, and its brigades of stately chorus beauties who marched like West Pointers down the steps of the great on-stage pool, there to disappear magically beneath the water. His faculties, however— ceased to be occupied with the idle memories recalled so vividly by his immediate surroundings. They focused on the task before him with a flash of the old power of concentration that had once made him the terror of every young prosecutor employed by the district attorney's office. The task that had lain so long before him, dragging on for a full five years beyond the time when he had considered himself retired, commanded his full attention. Even now, with its completion at hand, difficulties continued to crop up, difficulties like the unforeseen trouble he had had in the past week in getting the ear of Breckinridge Barnum. He consoled himself with the thought that today he would be through, able to retire at last to the complete rest of his years of work entitled him to. Breckinridge Barnum certainly shouldn't be difficult, not if Brian O'Connell remembered that young man at all. He'd always rather liked Barnum, been more than once amused by his sincerity and unafraid impetuosity. The young man had been a bit too radical, perhaps, but that in itself was not an unhealthy sign when accompanied by youth. Probably, with increased years and responsibilities, Barnum would have settled down a bit by now. He had certainly seemed to be busy, if the old lawyer's inability to see him on his three previous trips to the city meant anything. But he had been assured an audience today. He smiled faintly at the thought that he, Brian O'Connell, should have to make so many arduous trips to town to see Breckenridge Barnum. The years, even five years, could account swiftly for many startling changes. Just a few minutes of conversation should wind the case up, Winded up fairly with all parties satisfied, including Brian O'Connell, now that his trusteeship was carried out in full. And for himself, there would be peace and naps under a garden sun in summer, or before an open fire when the winter winds grew chill. He paused just off the lip of the sidewalk, peered cautiously in both directions as he waited for the traffic light to turn in his favor before he crossed the avenue. As he did so, a dark blue sedan, which had been following his progress slowly for the past several blocks, picked up speed, and when he moved warily another step into the street, it swerved across and bore directly down on him. He never even saw it. But suddenly, and to him inexplicably, a woman directly behind him gave vent to a piercing shriek. The impact of harsh sound on his eardrums made him start— "'and to vast annoyance, lose dignity. "'He whirled toward the source of the noise "'with unsuspected agility, "'and his move caused the car to whiz past him, "'barely brushing his coattails "'with a mudguard he neither saw nor felt. "'The woman, a plump creature "'wearing a foolish bright red hat and red shoes, "'seemed to have fainted. "'At any rate, her mascarad eyes were closed, "'revealing ridiculous artificial eyelashes.' A policeman and a cluster of other sidewalk paraders appeared to be taking care of her. He shrugged his faded broadcloth shoulders. Silly creatures, women, screaming like that at nothing and then fainting. He hadn't known women did faint any more. With another shrug, he turned again and crossed the street with the crosstown green light. That she had saved his life was something he was never to learn. Dorothy Cochrane wearing a black jersey dress that did no damage at all to her softly, if not flamboyantly seductive figure, came ambling into Breckenridge Barnum's office. She tossed him a rather casual, end-of-the-day salute, lifted herself not too gracefully onto a corner of his glass top desk. The beige powder, had been worked off the bridge of her rather short, straight nose, was caked at the base of her nostrils in pink and sullen protest against an honest highlight above. A medium shade of lipstick was slightly smeared in one corner of her tight little mouth, where a cigarette burned. Her hazel eyes were reduced to slits to keep them clear of smoke, as she used both hands to fluff feather-cut medium brown hair. Well, Breck, she said, paused to stretch, first with one arm, then with the other, barely removing her cigarette from her mouth in time for an uncovered yawn. And so another week passes into limbo of lathe, "'What do you know? Got anything?' "'Just a sounds in the night for Winchell,' said Breck Barnum, yawning in sympathy. He lifted a live cigarette from the ashtray in front of him, took a puff, asked, "'How do you like it?' "'Let's hear it first, she said dryly. "'Okay, don't get your drawers in an uproar,' he said, picked up a piece of paper." Overheard at the Jamaica Inn, she has a heart like a steel trap in a mind of gold. How about it? Stinks, said the girl impassively, added, but it might do for a filler on a quiet night. She wrinkled her nose as she considered it. In a bright, oddly acquisitive and strictly so-what way, she was a pretty girl. Her nylons boasted a run down her left tibia, which seemed to bother her not at all. I could have done better, maybe. "'said Breck apologetically. "'Dorothy Cochran had that effect on him "'with her well-ordered, forward-march personality. "'If I hadn't had a silly gag running around in my dome.' "'Oh, it's not that bad,' said the girl, yawning again. "'If you could come up with one like it every day, "'you might rise to be one of Jack Benny's gag men. "'That would be terrific, wouldn't it?' "'Ouch!' said Breck, "'ducking and lifting his arms as if to fend off a blow.' Can't you stop playing the female Horatio Alger or Little Elsie or whatever it is once in a while? All right, said Dorothy, her voice husky with sudden weariness. To save myself another lecture on the value of a sense of humor and the ability to live for the moment. Toujours le moment. Let's hear the silly gag. It's all right, said Breck defensively. Only it's not printable. "'I seem to have heard this song before,' said Dorothy, "'filching a cigarette from the package on his desk "'and lighting it with the lipstick-marked butt "'of the one she'd been smoking. "'But listen, it's funny,' said Breck. "'If you had an affair with your mother-in-law, "'would you say she was inlaid?' "'All it got was silence, "'a silence that lasted embarrassingly for Breck "'while Dorothy measured him unsmilingly. "'Finally he groaned and turned away,' "'but the girl slipped off the corner of his desk "'and walked around to confront him. "'You waste so much time,' she said, "'quite serious, very kind, and only a trifle peevish. "'Honestly, Breck, darling, "'do you want to spend your whole life "'letting other people pick the dandruff out of your brains "'in this lousy racket?' "'There's no dandruff in my brains,' "'said Breck with a very feeble attempt at humor. "'I soak them in kreml." Do you want to be a press agent forever? She went on, ignoring his interruption. Do you want to get ulcers on other people's time? Why in hell don't you get busy and finish that goddamn book? He concluded for her. He ran a hand through his bright red hair. Breck Barnum was a massive, more than six-footer, whose all-around bigness and fine proportions caused unexpert observers to believe him much smaller than he actually was. Pacing the floor, he revealed a noticeable stiffness in the left leg, a stiffness that derived from twelve years of football, school, college, and professional, and had kept him, to his dismay, out of uniform. "'Exactly,' said Dorothy, still deadly serious, as she took hold of a slate-blue worsted-clad arm that might have been the branch of a maple. The top of her feather cut came barely to his shoulder, and she had to lift her hazel eyes from the level of his tie-clip, but her personality stood eye to eye with his. "'You're really an awful fool not to even look at it,' she paused." and he struggled successfully with an impulse to remind her she had fractured an infinitive. Anybody's a fool to let two years of work go to waste, she went on. You seem to have forgotten all about it, but you promised to bring it down with you today and let me look it over for you. Breck's book was beginning to be a sore point between them. Five years earlier, he had been employed by a public relations firm which paid its salaries by dealing in goodwill for multimillionaires and other vanishing Americans who showed a childish but profitable, for the public relations firm, desire to be considered nice old men by the public. His particular millionaire had been old Tom Flanders, the carburetor king, until that irascible, incredible, insatiable... And insufferable buccaneer of the big business trails died. After the old man was buried, Breck had been seized with a fit of ambition and launched himself on a literary effort to explain to a not-incurious world at large the secret of the Flanders' genius, an industrial organization, and the point of view that had made it possible. The Manuscript a good 40,000 and coate words strong now reposed peacefully in the bottom drawer of his desk at home where it was acquiring a fine meerschaum amber tint and gathering such dust as managed to filter in through the minute space between the desk frame and the top of the drawer for all of 2 years he hadn't even had a qualm of conscience over its abandonment hell he'd been too busy but just recently in the past week now that he came to think of it Dorothy had begun to pick on him about it, had launched a regular full-scale offensive to get him to finish it. She had even offered to finish it for him, a thought which, in view of her tendency to split infinitives, along with her total blackout of intellectual range, limited education, and lack of literary talent, gave him a fine case of the Phantods. "'Get this, Dotty," he said." pulled her close against him so that she had to look almost straight up to see his face. He knew this made her feel furiously inferior, and used it only when he wanted to assert himself against her driving, dominating personality. I want to forget about that damned Flanders biography. Twenty years from now, if you have the nerve to bring it up again, I'll scalp you.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Message from a Corpse. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.